What does it mean to be a Christian? How would you respond? Or to put it in a different but similar way, if they ask you the question, what is the Christian faith all about, what would you say? I've often used these questions when I'm talking to people that I, that I don't know, and they say, well, I'm a Christian. I often ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because I think that question reveals quite quickly where they are at spiritually. If this being a Christian is just something they've kind of grown up with, but it's not a real thing in their life or not. I've often been surprised at how many people will claim to be a Christian, but then when you ask them that question, what does it mean to be a Christian, they really struggle. They really don't know what to say. The most common response I get is that, well, um, being a Christian means that you, you believe in God and you try to be a good person. That's usually the response that I get. And it's amazing how few people will speak about Jesus dying on the cross and rising again and, and really what it actually means then to be a follower of Christ, having a personal trust in Him and, and seeking to live uh, in obedience to Him. It's amazing how many people do not go that direction with those questions. The passage of Scripture we're looking at today, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, answers these questions. What is the Christian faith all about? What does it mean to be a Christian? And so let's look at Mark chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 27. And uh, we're actually going to read through the first verse of chapter 9. I think that verse goes better with uh, the section that comes before it than what comes after it. So reading then Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we can gather this morning and look into your word. I pray that you would help me to do a good job of explaining and applying this passage to our lives. And Lord, help all of us to to keep our focus on your word now and what you have to say to us. Lord, there's so many things that could distract us from hearing from you this morning. And so we pray that you would help us to keep our focus where it ought to be. Thanks for giving us the Bible. And thank you, Lord, for the things that we can learn from the passage before us this morning. So bless our study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage we're looking at this morning describes the heart of the Christian faith, what the Christian faith is all about. And we first of all will focus on verses 27 through 33. And these verses describe how Jesus' death and resurrection was a necessary thing. You'll notice in verse 27 that Jesus, along with his disciples, was traveling up in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And if you were to look on a map, you'd find that that's on the very northern part uh, very northern uh, uh, top of Israel. So if you find the Sea of Galilee and the region of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi would have been north of that yet. And it seems that Jesus was wanting to spend some quality time with his disciples away from the crowds that they often uh, ran into in Galilee. You've perhaps noticed already in our study of Mark that it was very common for Jesus and his disciples to have such large crowds around them almost all the time that it was hard for them to even sit down and have a meal together. And so Jesus was probably wanting to have a little time with his disciples alone away from the crowds because he wanted to teach them some things and prepare them for some of the things that were going to come, that were going to happen to him in particular. And so as they're traveling along, he asked them a question. He asked them the question, who do people say that I am? And that's a great question, a great question to get the conversation going. And, and so they, they jump in and, and give some opinions among the people. Well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Others th think that you're Elijah. And others think that you're, you're one of the prophets. And there, it's kind of interesting to notice the responses that the disciples gave, the, the opinions that the people had about Jesus. You'll notice, first of all, that all of these opinions required a dead man to come back to life again. Because Elijah was long gone, the other prophets were long gone, and even John the Baptist at this point was dead. Perhaps he had been dead for a year or more. And so all, all of these opinions required that a dead man would come back to life again. You'll notice also that all of these opinions re regarded Jesus merely as a man. Okay, Someone great, like John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the prophets, these were great men. But all of these opinions regarded Jesus as a mere man. Now you'll notice that Jesus didn't seem, it didn't seem like he even responded to those opinions that the, the disciples offered. Rather, he got very personal with the disciples and asked them the, essentially the same question, but more personal. Who do the people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And here's where we got Peter, as he often did, being the first one to act and respond. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. 
You are the Christ. In other words, you're the Messiah, Jesus. That's what I think about you. You are the Messiah sent from God. Now, Peter, was he, he correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah. But what we're going to discover is that he had some very serious misunderstandings about what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. His idea of what the Messiah would come and do was very different from how things were actually going to go. Uh, And and Jesus had to correct these wrong uh, beliefs about what it meant for him to be the Messiah. But he asked the question, who do you say that I am? Now notice in verse 31 that Jesus began to teach the disciples that he was going to suffer many things, that he would be rejected by the religious leaders, that he would be killed, and then after three days he would rise again. And we notice that at this point in the ministry of Jesus, that he got very intentional about telling his disciples what was going to come. It's not that he hadn't ever spoken about these things in the time leading up to this point, but at this point Jesus got very intentional about telling them what was going to happen. And it was a shock to them. This is not what they were expecting to hear from Jesus. This is not what they thought would happen to Jesus uh, as the Messiah. You know, Peter's statement, you're the Christ. Well, what's going to happen to me as the Christ? Peter would not have said these things because he thought very differently about what the Messiah would come and do. But Jesus then tells them very plainly, and that's what he said in verse 32, says that Jesus was stating the matter plainly. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and after three days I'm going to rise again. Now I want you to turn your attention to chapter 9, verse 1. And I just want to make just a brief comment about this verse. I I believe that Jesus is referring, in chapter 9, verse 1, to his suffering and rejection and death and resurrection. I think that's what this verse is referring to. Because Jesus said, uh, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God uh, come with power. So I think Jesus is referring to how he would suffer and die, then rise again from the dead, and then we can think too of how shortly after that, Pentecost and and the birth of the church and the apostles going, uh, the kingdom of God coming with power. I, I think we need to connect with those events. And so Jesus says, some of you are going to be alive to see these things. But notice that in verse 32, as we go back to chapter 8, even though Jesus was, was stating these matters plainly, Peter at least did not understand what was going on. He did not agree with the things that Jesus had stated. Now you notice Jesus was stating the matter plainly. Now sometimes Jesus spoke in parables. Sometimes he used figurative language to describe things. And so people could, uh, on those occasions, maybe be in a position where they could legitimately say, I don't get it. I don't understand. Okay, What are you talking about, Jesus? And some of the parables and and statements Jesus made, we can look at and say, hey, this is kind of hard to understand. But Mark is telling us here that Jesus was being very clear and plain about these matters. And yet Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And it's kind of an amazing thing to think about, okay? If you think about who Jesus really is, okay, and who Peter really was. Peter was a mere man, a fisherman, right? 
And then he takes Jesus aside, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, and he tells him he's wrong. I mean, imagine that. God the Son, God in the flesh, being told by a sinful man named Peter, you're wrong. It's not going to happen to you. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're not going to suffer and die and be killed and all this stuff. I don't know what he thought about the rise again part. Kind of seems like he wasn't focusing on that. Kind of focusing more on the suffering, rejection, and death. But he takes Jesus aside and essentially tells him, this isn't going to happen to you. What are you talking about? You see, Peter's belief about the Messiah as well as the average person in Israel, the, the belief about the Messiah was that the Messiah would be like an earthly king and really bring back the glory days of Israel. That the Messiah would conquer all of Israel's enemies. And at this time, the Romans were in control of Israel. And so their, their idea of what the Messiah was going to be was that the Messiah would come and set them free from foreign oppression that it would bring back the glory days of Israel. They were thinking only in terms of earthly things. And so as Peter heard Jesus say what was going to happen to him, Peter thinking, well, he's the Messiah, Peter's thinking, this isn't right. And so Peter thinking, he's right in correcting Jesus, telling him that he's wrong. And that's where Jesus makes an amazing, uh, a very shocking statement to Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus, and so Peter, Jesus rebukes Peter in return. He says to him, get behind me, Satan, because you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's interest. I imagine Peter was absolutely shocked to hear Jesus say that, right? And I've been trying to think, what would be a modern-day equivalent for that? I suppose we could call someone Satan today, and they'd maybe be shocked. But, I mean, imagine you got a situation where... You've got a, a die-hard Democrat walks in the room and someone says to him, good morning, Mr. Trump. Okay, That person would be like, what? What did you call me? How dare you, right? Be absolutely shocked, right? Or you could reverse it, right? A die-hard Republican being called Mr. Obama. What did you call me, right? Or maybe a Packers lover, a uh, Packers fan being called a Vikings fan or something, you know, just really shocking, right? How dare you say that to me? I imagine that Peter's shock was kind of similar in a way, thinking, what did Jesus just call me? What did he just say to me? Get behind me, Satan. Now, it, I think this passage connects well with what we read for our scripture reading today from Matthew chapter 4. Obviously, Jesus was not saying that Peter is Satan, right? Not that Peter was actually Satan, but Peter was doing something, and I think we'd have to say he was doing something in ignorance that Satan would have done. Peter was essentially speaking against God's plan of salvation. Because Jesus coming and dying and rising again was a necessary part of, of God's plan of salvation, Peter is speaking against that, and that's the type of thing that Satan would have done. And as we look at Matthew chapter 4 again, the temptation of Christ by Satan, Satan is essentially trying to mess up God's plan of salvation. 
Well, if I can get Jesus to do this and to do that, to do what I tell him to do, to bow down and worship me, I can mess up God's plan to save people. And that's kind of what Peter was doing. He was speaking against God's plan of salvation. And that's why Jesus rebuked him so strongly. Get behind me, Satan. You're concerned not about the things of God, God's plan to save you, actually, Peter. You're focused on the things of man. He wanted an earthly king, a, a, a military conqueror, a political hero for the people of Israel. That's what he was thinking the Messiah was going to be. And so Jesus rebuked him. He had to correct Peter in the presence of the others so that they understood, no, these things are going to happen to me. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. These are necessary things. And these also are things that remain in all of history, pivotal events. We look back upon these events, the death and resurrection of Christ, and see that these events were absolutely necessary because they were part of God's plan of salvation for Peter and the disciples and everyone else, including me and you. And so as Jesus has this very interesting interaction with his disciples, he really does help us understand what the heart of the Christian faith is all about, that God would send his Son to die and rise again for our salvation. Now, as we move to verse 34 and following, you'll notice that Jesus speaks about those who would come and follow him. He speaks about those who would have a personal trust in him and how it's necessary for them to be committed and to be unashamed of Christ as they follow him. Let's read the verses again quickly. Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want you to notice something with me about the passage before us this morning. And I want you to notice that following Jesus is a very personal matter. We can go back to the early verses of our, of our, our passage today. Jesus asked the, the question, who do people say that I am? But then notice what Jesus does with his disciples. He gets very personal. But who do you say that I am? And he did that because following Jesus is a personal matter. It's a personal thing. And he speaks then in verse 34 and following about anyone who wishes to come after me and what that means. It's a personal thing. Following Jesus requires a personal commitment to him, a personal trust in him as your Savior. And, and notice that Jesus indicates that following him might not be a very easy thing. Now let's think about the disciples for a minute. Up to this point, following Jesus had been a pretty easy and exciting thing. And yes, they had moments where their faith uh, and, and maybe even to a certain degree, it felt like their lives were being tested. Remember the storm they went through? Um, 
They had some uncomfortable things at times, I'm sure. But for the most part, following Jesus had been pretty easy and pretty exciting. The crowds were flocking to him wherever they went. They were witnessing all kinds of miracles. They were sitting under Jesus' teaching. So far, following Jesus had been a pretty easy thing. And so to hear Jesus say what he said in these verses probably turned really upside down everything that they thought was going to be involved in following Jesus. Jesus made it clear that following him could actually be a difficult thing to do. But Jesus also made it clear that there's nothing more important, nothing more valuable in all the world than having a personal trust in him, than following him and not being ashamed about it. In fact, it's so important and valuable to follow Jesus that first of all, if persecution comes your way, it's still worth it to follow Jesus. Now as Christians in the Midwest of the United States, we would be foolish to pretend that we have it hard to be followers of Christ. We don't. We might face ridicule now and then if we're willing to speak about Christ to others. But we have it easy. But even if suffering were to come our way, even if, like for many Christians in other parts of the world, even if you're faced with death, for following Jesus, Jesus is telling us it's still worth it. Because there's nothing more important or valuable than all the world than following Him, than having a personal trust in Him as your Savior. And so even if suffering and death comes your way, it's still worth it to follow Jesus. But notice he speaks about another extreme. On one hand, you got persecution. It's still worth it to follow Jesus, even if that comes your way. But on the other hand, he speaks about pleasure. Things that could draw us away from Christ. And and if you look at verse 36, I think that this is one of the most powerful statements in all of the Bible. Jesus asks a question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What a powerful statement. What a powerful question. What does it profit a man if he could gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? We're concerned about profit, aren't we? If you think about businesses, they they want to make money, right? They want to be profitable. If you're involved in farming, you want your farming operation to be profitable. We can think about that in terms of activities too. Is it worth it to be involved in this activity. We think about things in terms of profit a lot. And Jesus asked the question then, and I think he's really setting up a hypothetical. Suppose that you could get all that the world has to offer, but you don't have me. Is it worth it? I mean, imagine that you could have all the money and possessions that the world has to offer. That you could have all of the pleasures and enjoyable things that this world has to offer. That you could have absolute power here in this world. That you could have accomplished 
all of the things that people find to be valuable and important in life. Imagine that someone could have all of that, but not Jesus. Does it profit that man? Jesus is saying no, isn't he? He's saying even if you could have all that the world has to offer, but you don't have the salvation of your soul, it's not worth it. And so whether it's persecution or pleasures that would tempt us to, to, to leave Christ, Jesus is saying there's nothing more important or valuable than having him as your Savior. And this is really what the Apostle Paul stated about himself and would remind us about today. If you remember, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. He was a rising star amongst the Pharisees. People in Israel knew his name. Many would have said, boy, I'd like to be like him when I grow older. He was a persecutor of the church. He had connections with all the important people. In many ways, Paul had a lot of what the world had to offer. And yet Paul became a follower of Christ. He went from a persecutor of the church to being a planter of churches, a preacher of Christ. And Paul made the statement in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul proclaims the truth to us today, that there is nothing of greater value than knowing Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Whether you suffer and face death, or whether you have the possibility of experiencing all kinds of pleasures that the world has to offer, there's nothing more important than following Christ. In just a minute, we're going to sing the hymn, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And I hope today that we could, in, in singing that hymn, mean the words that we say, that it would be true, that we could actually say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts and minds this morning the importance of knowing Christ as our Savior. Lord, it's only in Him that we can have the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls. And so help us, Lord, as we go through life, whether we face persecution for being a Christian or we would be tempted by the pleasures of the world to, to walk away from Christ, help us, Lord, to see very clearly that there is nothing of greater value than knowing Christ as our Savior. Strengthen us in the faith, Lord. Help us to grow closer to Christ our Savior each day. And Lord, we're thankful that you've given us the Bible that we can study and grow together in the faith. Thanks for being so good to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.